we're officially recording. We're recording. We're recording. This is exciting. So this is your second podcast season. Any tips? Um. Don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Kyle Poyer, a member of OpenView's expansion team, where I help software companies grow out of the awkward teenage years of the expansion stage. Each year, thousands of new SaaS companies are founded. Most of them fail, a few succeed, and a lucky handful go on to have storybook endings. This season on Build, we're dedicating every episode to a different SaaS benchmark. Think growth rates, unit economics, the rule of 40, all the good stuff. But don't worry, this won't just be a podcast about numbers. Each week on Build, I'll speak with VCs to find out what they're looking for in a new investment, as well as operators to get the inside track on how to actually hit those lofty benchmarks that get promised in the boardroom. This season will also be interactive. You can help us improve our SaaS benchmarks by participating in the 2018 SaaS Benchmark Survey. Visit benchmarks.openviewpartners.com to learn more and find last year's results. And oh, by the way, we promise not to share your data with Russia. Now on with the show. Today's episode is all about growth, how fast your company should be growing, how to build the right foundation for growth, and how to jumpstart growth when it starts to slow down. I'm joined by Dan Demmer, managing partner at OpenView, and Christoph Jans, managing partner at Point9, an early stage venture capital firm. Dan, thanks for sitting down and chatting. Today we're going to talk about all things growth. You're no stranger to helping software companies grow. Could you share a bit about your experience? Sure, Kyle. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks for joining. All right. So I've been a key operator of two successful high-growth software companies, and subsequently I've also been on the board of multiple high-growth software companies. first company was Iona Technologies. I was the CFO there. We grew quite substantially quite through multiple stages of growth as a public company, ultimately getting to about $200 million in revenue and about a $2 billion market cap. And then I joined a company called Indeca Technologies, which was a search and analytical software company where we grew it from a very early stage through multiple stages of growth again to about $150 million or so in revenue. And ultimately, we sold that to Oracle for over a billion dollars. And now, as a managing partner here at a venture firm, I'm on multiple high-growth software company boards. So, you know, you've been an executive for a while on you know, several boards, really successful companies. What was actually your first job, and you know, did that have an influence at all on where you've ended up? Oh, Kyle. <laughs> Funny you should say that. My first job, I'm not sure it had any influence on where I am today, <laughs> other than it taught me that all about getting the customer successful was the most important thing. And my first job was washing dishes and serving ice cream at an ice cream parlor, and uh, it was always fun to be able to go out and serve ice cream cones to the, uh, to the customers, and it felt like getting the customer what they wanted was kind of a most fun part of that job. It seems like a trend here at OpenView. Liz Kane on the team was also, her first job was at an ice cream parlor, although she was running the place at like 16, classic Liz. Not surprised. <laughs> Back to software. So everyone wants their software company to grow quickly, but why is growth so important? What does growth do for an organization? Well, growth is really the driver of value. And I think value is kind of the equation that people are shooting for. Value is winning, right? You're trying to create value. And so growth does that. And value is the is sort of a metric of winning. And I think people are part of an organization and they want to be part of a winner. So as you grow, you're starting to be part of a winner. You feel good about your organization. That sort of success breeds success. 
So in the end, growth really does help drive organizations to perform better. So it's yeah, the marker of whether a company is, is winning or not. Totally. And there's, you know, there's a lot of advice out there about growth rates and how fast a company needs to be growing to really be seen as a winner. I know, you know, some people talk about the triple twice, double two times rule going from 1 million to 100 million in five years. When we looked at the data, we saw that only actually 20% of software companies that IPO really hit this growth benchmark. And these were the lucky few companies that IPO'd. And you know, thousands of companies get founded and don't IPO. So companies think they need to hit these certain growth benchmarks to be a winner, but they might actually lose sight on building the right foundation for growth. You know, how should startups be thinking about growth, in your opinion? Well, I think in the beginning, startups really think about growth around just acquiring any customer they can. And the most important thing there is to make that customer successful early on. And it'll be from those customer successes that they can then really focus on what I would call targeted growth. Because if they can really have focused or targeted growth as the next phase, that's where they can build more of an efficient foundation for growth going forward. And there are different schools of thought about trying to grow at all costs and dominate a market as opposed to growing in a more managed, sustained way. How do you advise startups on what's the best course of action for their business? Well, I don't necessarily subscribe to the grow at all costs concept. I think what's important is that they get early success with customers, understand why customers are being successful, make sure there's a feedback loop into the organization around what makes a customer successful with their product. That needs to get into the R&D organization, the customer support organization, the marketing organization, the sales organization, kind of get a feedback loop going. And then you can really start to target and understand the right characteristics of a customer and the characteristics that make the best customer for you. Then you can pour lots of investment into that segment of customers that have those characteristics and dominate that segment. And that's when you grow at all costs for a given known segment where you can dominate. And what are the signals that a company has that down, right? That they have that feedback loop in place, they really know their best customer and they're ready to scale. It actually shows up in the reduced friction of the sales. So what will happen is everything will start to move faster, the sales process will move faster, the pipeline will move faster, and there's just reduced friction in the sales and with those customers becoming successful and generally coming back to purchase more. You're, of course, no stranger to helping software companies grow and, and hit scale, be it you know as CFO, as president of Medeca, you're all on the board of numerous venture-backed companies. What are the different stages you see that software companies go through as they grow? That's a great question. Well, at first, as I mentioned earlier, the first thing is all about just getting any customer, right? You're trying to find customers to get your product in the market so you can then learn and get that feedback loop we talked about. Then the next phase is that targeted growth phase where, okay, now we've got a set of characteristics and customers that fit those characteristics that we're really going to dominate. And then the next stage is, okay, let's maybe we're dominating that phase. Let's try to do some experiments to understand what kind of adjacent sort of market segments might we be able to get into that have similar customer characteristics? And we're maybe starting to go into another segment that may be adjacent to our winning segment. And then maybe the next phase is, okay, now we need to kind of start to grow maybe geographically. And generally, that might be English-speaking international countries first, and then maybe you start to go into more a broader global approach across the geography of the world. We've been seeing lately the rise of this growth hacker role at companies, where they'll bring on someone that's, you know, their sole job is growth. But growth ultimately has to be everyone's responsibility in a company, right? How do you create a 
real culture of growth at a company. So you know, everyone's thinking about how does the company grow. Yeah, well, you sort of are right on it. The, a growth culture really is all about everyone in the company feels like they're responsible either for t- obtaining the next customer or making an existing customer successful, which then leads to obtaining the next customer. And so that really goes back to that whole feedback loop I talked about, where the whole organization is geared around obtaining customers and making those customers successful and getting more efficient at that. And it's about everyone's responsibility to do that. It's not the salesperson's responsibility or the growth hacker's responsibility. It's, it's the entire organization's responsibility to grow. Now you're sitting on many boards. What role does the board play in that process? Uh, that's a great question. I think the, the board is really responsible for holding the management team accountable for having a strategic plan and then executing against the milestones of that plan and really holding them accountable, holding the management team accountable to that. And I think really importantly, the board is responsible for holding the CEO accountable for building a team that can execute the plan. Mm. And when you coach CEOs, what are some of the characteristics that you look for or skills that you're trying to develop with those CEOs? You know, I think the best CEOs really have a few key characteristics they are independent thinkers who can make decisions. So you have to be able to be a decision maker. You have to have a vision, but not just a vision, but you need a passion for the vision. CEOs need to have a, a value of team. They need to value the teams in place that can execute those, because they need the team to execute that vision. And I think CEOs really need to, you know, they need to be persuasive. You know, they gotta be persuasive, and of course things are gonna go wrong, so they have to be, they have to be persistent too. I'd say those are the qualities. No easy job to hit all of those. <laughs> so what are the most common mistakes that you see from companies that either, you know, they've grown and then their growth starts to slow down or, you know, they just haven't built the foundation to be growing successfully? Yeah, yeah. the most common mistake I see, particularly in the earlier stages of companies, is they never leave that get any customer stage. They're kind of still on the, oh, we'll go get any customer, and any customer is a good customer. That can get you a few million dollars even more in revenue, but ultimately, you really need to convert that into a targeted growth approach. I think the biggest mistake I see is companies wait too long or are, are still chasing any customer as opposed to trying to figure out who the right customer for, they, for their company is. And when does that change tend to happen in a business? There's no predetermined timeline, but you know, it's somewhere sub $10 million. You sort of start to, you should be able to, you have enough customer information now, you should start to be able to figure out what are the characteristics of the right customers for our company in, to create a segment to go dominate. And you know, we saw that as well in the SaaS benchmark survey that we ran. We saw companies grow extremely quickly at first, but after about five to 10 million in ARR, growth rate on average plummets, falling to 50% or lower on average. So definitely saw that even out in the data and you know when you do see a company's growth start to stall or slow down what advice do you give them on how they can diagnose what's wrong and turn things around again i think they got to start with understanding that the data is usually in their own customer profile and trying to understand who are the right customers for their product and then making sure that feedback loop is getting into the product getting into the customer support organization getting into the marketing organization getting into the sales organization it's really trying to make sure that whole company is aligned around the right target segment. And I think what happens is companies don't do that. They get too dispersed and that feedback loop isn't happening. They start to stall. And you mentioned it's the CEO's job to really build a great team around them. I know many executives go through the challenge of what's the right profile to hire for different roles and when do they need to bring on an executive 
versus having a player coach versus having someone execute. How do you advise them on making the right decision for different roles? Well, every situation there is kind of interesting and unique because of the skill sets of the particular founders. But generally speaking, they don't go fast enough. They don't go higher. Most management teams or SEALs will tend to under-hire initially, and I think it's really important that they are aware of their strengths and weaknesses and that what they need to do is improve. They really need to set up executives around them so they can continue to set the vision and align the people around the vision as opposed to executing the vision. Mm. And then from the outside, you've been a part of many companies that have had an incredible growth and outcomes. Have you ever actually failed? And what did you learn from that experience? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, all of my companies have these great graphs. They're up and to the right on the revenue <laughs> chart. None of them felt that way because there was failures in all of them all along the way. I think that's how you learn. It's a constant, it's a constant experiment. And so failures are how you get better. Many failures in my life uh, in all those successful businesses. I think the key there is about setting goals, measuring your progress, and adjusting when things aren't achieving your expectations. And that's, that's how you learn from your failures and you keep moving. So charts look up and to the right, but there's failures all along the way. That's great advice. So there's still hope for everyone out there if things start to you know, not feel quite like everything's going up and to the right. It, you know, it w- once you have some perspective, it might actually <laughs> look like that in hindsight. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Have a good day. It was awesome to hear from Dan Demmer, a managing partner here at OpenView. My takeaway from Dan is that growth isn't as much about acquiring customers as it is about making those first customers as accessible as possible and learning from those successes to create targeted growth going forward. In our next interview, Christoph Jans from Point Nine Capital will share his perspective as an early stage investor. Christoph has invested in a number of high growth technology companies, including Zendesk, Free Agent, Gecko Board, and Typeform. Previously, he was an internet entrepreneur and co-founded DealPilot.com and PageFlakes. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Christoph. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Pleasure to be on the show. Before we dive in, you know, how did you get started in the world of SaaS and in tech investing? It really all, all started with Zendesk, one of the companies you already mentioned in the, in the introduction. It was about 10 years ago that I stumbled on Zendesk, actually almost exactly 10 years ago in, I think, like the spring of 2008. And at that time, I had previously sold PageFlakes, which was my my second internet startup. And um, it wasn't quite clear to me what was going to be next for me. And I was really just browsing the web for inspirations and interesting ideas. And then I stumbled on Zendesk. And at that time, really, I I knew nothing about SaaS. Like I I used to pronounce it S-A-A-S. So that that, this tells you how how early it was and how how much or little I knew about SaaS. And but when I saw Zendesk and also a few other companies that started to emerge um, around that time, I really fell in love with this idea of the consumerization of enterprise software. And it also made it easier for me to um, develop an interest in uh, B2B software at all because my background as an entrepreneur was on the consumer side and I really knew nothing about enterprise software. So the reason why I got interested in, in Zendesk and maybe also the reason why I got interested in it 
whereas more experienced enterprise software investors maybe didn't get so excited at the time was that it was somewhat closer to what I knew as a consumer-focused and really product-focused um, internet entrepreneur. And yeah, so I, I invested in, in Zendesk 10 years ago and then uh, started to look for companies that were built based on like some, some similar ideas or philosophies and, and made a couple of further investments in SaaS companies around that time, like Free Agent and, and, and Clio and, and several others. All right, of all the companies to stumble upon 10 years ago, <laughs> Zendesk is certainly a great one. How large were they at the time? It was really, really early. The company was around one year old at that time. It was three guys, the, the three founders, and I think maybe one or two freelancers or, or part-time, not even employees, I think, really just freelancers helping them with the development of the product. The product was launched just a couple of weeks, or maybe two or three months before I first met the Zendesk team. And they had, um, I think, something like 40, 50 customers paying them about $100 per month each. So they were at an MRR of, of a couple of uh, thousand dollars, which was already nice and, and encouraging, but obviously it was still very, very early. Wow. And now looking back there, you know, hundreds of times that size. <laughs> so I'm sure you saw, you know, a really interesting growth story. And, you know, from the outside, it looks all up and to the right, but I'm sure there were times along that journey where it didn't always feel like that. Yes, absolutely. And today, Zendesk is obviously an incredibly successful company aiming for a billion dollars in ARR within the next couple of years. So it's it's been a completely like insane <laughs> growth, which obviously I... I didn't expect and couldn't even have, have dreamed about. But yes, it, it was not a clean story, if you will, always just up and to the right. And actually, I think the biggest bump was probably right at that time when, when I invested in the seed round. And then shortly thereafter, we were trying to raise a Series A round because it, it was a pretty small seed round, quite quite typical for a European seed round at that time, where basically almost right after the seed round, you have to keep raising and, and look for the next round of financing. And at that time, really nobody wanted to invest. So um, that was definitely a, a very difficult time. But after we've eventually found a great Series A investor, and then not too long after also a Series B investor, things started to develop a lot of steam and, and, and traction. And I think from that point on, it became a real success story. Although I'm sure even at the later stage, there were a, a, a tons of, of issues, which I'm not even aware of as somebody who has kind of been observing it from the sidelines at that point. Well, wow, that's that's really an incredible story, and it's amazing to think that there was a point in time when people were skeptical about Zendesk, and it was difficult for them to prove themselves in the market. When you know you look now, and it it seems like a, a no brainer. <laughs> you know, today's podcast it's all about growth, and you wrote an article last fall uh, about knowing when to scale and how to prove that you can do it. I think that's a really important point because. How fast a company is growing doesn't matter at all if they don't have the fundamentals down. So when is a startup ready to scale? Yeah, I think it's a very important question indeed. And um, I think also trying to scale 
before you're ready for it is is one of the most important or most frequent reasons why startups fail. So it's it's quite important to get that timing right. I think you're ready to scale when you have a high degree of confidence that if you maybe to to simplify it a little that if you double your sales and marketing spend then the results will also double meaning like twice the number of leads twice the number of customers twice the amount of new revenue that you're bringing in obviously this is even if you start to pull the trigger on this it's not going to work overnight but if you're starting off a pretty small scale then you should see these kinds of results pretty quickly like when you're doubling from one salesperson to two or from two to four and also double your your marketing budget or marketing activities along the lines. And then if you don't see that the results scale more or less linearly, then I would say that's an indication that you're not ready to scale yet. Then in addition to this, there are a couple of other important prerequisites. Like for example, if you have a high churn rate or if you're funnel basically looks like a leaky bucket or if the unit economics don't make sense yet those are all reasons or indications that should tell you you're not ready to scale yet got it it's all about you know yeah that roi of that sales and marketing activity and, and making sure that it's still there as you pour more money into it and you know we've looked at the rates that companies are growing and you know we we looked at in our survey how fast typical companies are growing a lot of times people talk a lot about the superstars like the slacks of the world that grow from you know 0 to 100 million in just a couple of years and set new benchmarks for how fast you know companies are expected to grow and i want to take a step back and just i'm curious about your perspective why does growth matter why is there so much attention on growth yeah that's a good question and i think it's important to become clear about what is the perspective that you're taking here like is it the vc perspective or is it the founder perspective which in some cases is the same and aligned but definitely not in all cases because venture capitalists um including ourselves to to a large extent whether one likes it or not we have a, a kind of strange business model because the history just shows that the returns are highly power law driven meaning that the vast majority of the returns in in any venture capital fund are driven by a small number of of outliers um, and that it's hard to be really successful as a vc if you don't have one or some of these extraordinarily exceptionally successful companies in in your fund and that's the fundamental reason why vcs want to find these incredibly fast growing companies and when they see companies like Slack or, or Dropbox and, and see their growth paths, then people see what's possible and then aim for uh, similar types of growth, despite the fact that it's obviously a reality that 99 or maybe 99.9% of the companies out there will, will never be able to achieve a growth that is as fast as these companies. The fastest growers set that expectation, which is very hard for most to live up to. And, you know, I, I am curious. So there is this mentality, you know, grow faster, die slow. But we have seen companies that, you know, maybe they're bootstrap companies that take more of the slow track and get to a meaningful scale, not in two years, but over a longer period of time. What does that look like? Have you seen companies either in your portfolio or elsewhere that have taken the slow track and been successful? Yes, absolutely. And I think it also really depends on how you define success. And, and again, here there is a 
a disconnect between what VCs, especially larger VC funds, consider to be a success and what can be a huge success for pretty much any any founder. Like consider a SaaS company that grows somewhat slower and maybe after, let's say, after eight or 10 years, they are maybe at 20 or 30 million in ARR. And at that point, the company is not doubling uh, year over year anymore. So that company will probably never become a unicorn. But at the same time, it's well possible that it is a very viable business, a profitable company, and maybe it will eventually exit for, I don't know, let's say 100, 200, 300 million dollars, which is obviously an amazing success for for the founders and already sort of an, an, an outlier. But at the same time, it's not the kind of return which which is going to make Sequoia happy, um, who who just did a, I think a thousand x on their on their first investment in Dropbox. So really defining what success means, I think, is important here. We've definitely seen companies in our portfolio that have taken that path and where we also think that eventually they might become um, really, really valuable, maybe not unicorns, but certainly um, they could become worth hundreds of millions of, of dollars, may maybe half a billion. It's also related to the specific industry problem that you're solving or, or the vertical that you're in. And sometimes maybe a company is in a market that just doesn't grow as fast as other markets do, and then maybe it, it takes longer. But I think uh, persistence really pays off, um, especially in, in SaaS, which, except for these outliers, just doesn't grow as quickly as, as maybe a viral uh, consumer app. And I, I think you just need a, need a lot of patience. Right. And, you know, yeah, all success is relative to the expectations. And, you know, for SaaS companies, there's sort of this magic number of hitting $100 million in ARR. And back in 2014, you actually wrote a post that still gets a lot of traction in, in comments today. When I last checked, I think you had 115 comments on it. And it was about there being five ways to build a $100 million business. What are those ways? How does a company build a $100 million business? This idea to pick a $100 million Obviously, the number is a little bit arbitrary. It could be just as well 80 or 120, right? There's no nothing particularly magical about the number 100 million, but it usually represents or corresponds with companies that are worth a billion or could be on their path to become worth a billion, which is kind of like the outcome which most um, investors are looking for. So what I did when I thought about this post or developed this this little uh, framework is that I thought about a little two-axis uh, chart with where you have the ARPA, meaning the average revenue per account, on the x-axis. And then on the y-axis, you have the number of customers that you need to get to $100 million in total annually recurring revenues as a function of the revenue per customer. And then obviously, in theory, there is an infinite amount of possibilities how you can get there. It's just simple math. But to make this a bit more useful and, and tangible, I simplified it and, and came up with these five animals, as I called them, each animal representing one type of customer, starting 
with a f what I call the, the fly representing a customer with an average revenue per account of $10 per year. And then each subsequent animal has an ARPU or ARPA, which is one order of magnitude higher. So the next one you know, then the, the mice and then you have the rabbits and the deer and eventually the, the elephants. And this analogy I have borrowed actually from the terminology which salespeople like to use. Like when they say they just closed an elephant deal, which usually means like they, they've closed a six-figure deal. So that terminology was the inspiration for that. And I, and I think other people too find it just quite useful to think about like what is really what ACV and also what kind of LTV can I expect? And then as a result of that, how much can I, can I spend on acquiring one of these customers and how many of them do I eventually need if I want to build a really big business? Right. And, you know, the tactics a company can take if they're hunting elephants look very different than if they're going after mice or rabbits. They can spend a lot more to acquire that customer. Exactly. And, and that is basically the point maybe where it starts to become less trivial or, or obvious as, as maybe you could think this graph is in principle, because actually maybe one of the biggest traps or, or reasons why SaaS companies can't find ways to grow beyond a certain scale is if they are actually hunting deer from a like from an ACV perspective, but it takes elephant type effort to acquire these customers. I've seen this many, many times that the SaaS company is in a situation where they have to apply field sales to sell a product because it's complicated and, and can't be sold over the phone or because there is not enough demand which you can capture online. But if then you put in this effort, but you, you're not able to extract six figures from, from these customers, then you're probably not going to be able to build a profitable and scalable customer acquisition engine. Yeah, and that goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning of knowing when a company is ready to scale and, and seeing that you know, as they add salespeople, the ROI on that investment, or as they spend more on marketing, the ROI is there. What I'm sure you've seen many companies grow, grow quickly. What fast-growing company would you say you most admire and why? Well, when I'm asked this question, I, I typically refer to some of the companies from our portfolio because I, I know them, I'm most close to them, and, and I'm in love with all of them. And so we, have, we do have a number of really fast-growing companies in our portfolio right now, such as Front, Automile, Algolia, contentful type form. But if I look beyond our, our portfolio, then I think Slack is obviously super um, impressive. We're also very active um, users of, of Slack here, here at Point9 and also use it quite extensively with our portfolio companies. So I, I love Slack from a user perspective. And I think they've also really nailed this bottom-up customer acquisition model and uh, similarly, I'm a big fan of, of Dropbox, which, as you know, just did a very successful IPO. And it's probably no coincidence that these two companies, which are maybe the two fastest or among the two fastest growing SaaS companies, both have this kind of bottom-up distribution, this viral uh, distribution element, which just allows you to grow much faster and, and more capital efficient than more traditional enterprise SaaS companies. Doesn't mean that we're not excited about this type of company too. It's just a very different model. 
Totally. And it's, it's interesting seeing, you know, Zendesk, which was obviously one of the, the first more consumerized SaaS companies from 10 years ago, and then seeing that model get changed and perfected and must be really exciting. I'd like to end on a question that I'm asking all of our guests. So you have obviously been extremely successful as an entrepreneur and now as an investor. When have you actually failed and what did you learn from that experience? I mean, I've, I've failed lots of times. I think as an entrepreneur, I've probably failed many more times than, than I've, I've succeeded. I mean, I started to be an entrepreneur even as a, still as a while I was still at school and was just trying all kinds of things, um, buying and selling hardware and developing and selling software, building up a mail order business and all kinds of things. And I think it's just the nature of entrepreneurship that most things don't work out. And then you have to stand up again and then try something else. As an investor, you have a portfolio of companies and therefore you're kind of hedging your bets. As a founder, you don't have that advantage. But the way I look at it is that as a, as a founder, you kind of have a portfolio sequentially, if that makes sense. Um, you, you cannot build it at the same time. But I think you have to, if, if you're really in for this, I think you have to start and keep starting and building companies maybe over several decades. And then eventually, with enough persistence and hopefully some luck and good timing, you'll, you'll hit on something. So if the first startup doesn't succeed, that's just great learning experience for the next one. I absolutely think so. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your advice. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Kyle. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Build. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. You can compare yourself to your peers by checking out our benchmarking data at benchmarks.openviewpartners.com. Please help us improve this data and participate in our 2018 survey. That's actually out now at openview.vc forward slash 2018 dash benchmarks. And outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter, which is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You, you can do that by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time. <laughs>